Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Charles Manson's Hollywood. This is the episode that I have been dreading, and which I suppose some of you, maybe, have been waiting for. This is the episode in which Charles Manson, and about a quarter of his followers, begin to become murderers. Everything we've talked about thus far is relevant to why Manson sent his followers out to commit these crimes. But the moment on August 8th, 1969, when Charles Manson returned to Spawn Ranch and got the news that Bobby Beausoleil was in jail for the murder of Gary Hinman, was arguably the most pivotal moment in Manson's transition from would-be rock star nutbird fringe hippie guru to mastermind of mass murder. Charlie was livid when he heard the news. Bobby had said he wasn't going to snitch, but Charlie didn't believe him. Charlie believed that if Bobby was left to rot in jail for long enough, Bobby would say anything that he thought might get him free. Charlie figured that he had two options. He could run away, leave Spawn Ranch, and probably leave the family behind. But he didn't want to do that. He'd already invested too much time and energy into building this cult, And ego-wise, how would he survive without them? So the only other option would be to figure out how to get Bobby out of jail. And, if possible, launch the opening salvo in Helter Skelter in the process. Join us, won't you? As we detail the events of August 8th, August 9th, and August 10th. 1969. August in Los Angeles can be kind of the worst. A city that's used to a high of 75 degrees nearly year-round starts to wither as temperatures climb into the 90s and 100s and above. It's never so bad out by the beach, but in the foothills and valleys... It's brutal. Spawn Ranch was about as deep into the sun-baked San Fernando Valley as you could get. But things weren't much better in Benedict Canyon. At the house on Cielo Drive, Sharon Tate was so pregnant and so hot that she spent most of the morning lounging by the pool in a bra and panties. It was around 11 a.m. that Friday that Tate took a poolside call from her husband, Roman Polanski, who had been delaying his return to Los Angeles from London. 
Today, Roman was calling to say that he had finally booked his return trip. He was packed and ready to go. He just had to wait until Monday to get his U.S. visa from the consulate. He would be home by Tuesday. It was Friday night in London, and knowing he would be returning to his pregnant wife in a few days, Polanski went out on the town. Out at a club with friends, Polanski picked up a girl who he would later call a bimbo and brought her back to his place. With her husband's return finally settled, Sharon had a couple of girlfriends over for lunch and then went down for a nap. Her house guests, Abigail Folger and Wojciech Farkowski, left the house for the afternoon. Farkowski spent the afternoon with Jay Sebring's current girlfriend, visiting another friend at an art gallery, and then going back to Folger's house to listen to records. While her boyfriend was out with another man's girlfriend, Abigail Folger was at her psychiatrist's office. After yet another hour devoted to her problems with Frykowski, Abigail made up her mind. It was time to break up. She'd break the news next week, after Roman was back in town and she and Frykowski had moved out of Sharon's house. Back at Cielo Drive, Sharon talked to her sister Debbie, who had been scheduled to come spend the night that night. Sharon told Debbie she was tired. Could they do it another time? Then Sharon called a friend, Sheila Wells, who had previously invited Tate over to her house for dinner that night. Sharon told Wells that she was tired, that she thought she and Jay would just spend the night in. The Jay being Jay Sebring, Sharon's ex-boyfriend. About 70% of Hollywood, give or take, later said that they had been invited over to Sharon Tate's house the night of August 8th, 1969. Most of these people were probably exaggerating or misremembering. Frykowski did invite a couple of Polish friends over, both of whom declined because they had other plans. Cass Elliott from The Mamas and the Papas and Jacqueline Suzanne, the author of Valley of the Dolls, both claimed they declined Sharon's invitation to dinner, too. Robert Evans said that he had planned to meet Tate at El Coyote, the Mexican restaurant on Beverly Boulevard, which still stands today across the street from what is now the local office of BuzzFeed. Tate, Folger, Fikowski, and Sebring did eat at El Coyote, but Evans didn't join them. According to Evans, he was stuck in an editing room, and he called Sharon at the last minute to say he wasn't going to make it. It was about 10 p.m. when the group returned from El Coyote to the Cielo Drive house. Frykowski had received a delivery that afternoon of cocaine and mescaline, but instead of opening that up, he and Folger took some MDA, which Frykowski had been experimenting with in fairly large doses as part of his attempt to become the sole supplier of the drug to the new Hollywood elite. You could say that it's evidence of where their relationship was at at this point, that while on this touchy-feely drug, Frykowski and Folger retired to separate rooms. She went into their bedroom to read while he lay down on the living room couch. This is in contrast to non-couple Jay and Sharon, who went into her bedroom. So Sharon took off her dress and cooled off in the bra and panties that she had been wearing around the house all day. Jay cracked open a Heineken and lit up a joint, and they sat and talked. Meanwhile, back on Spawn Ranch, Charles Manson was calm. 
This was opposed to earlier in the day when, right after finding out that Bobby Beausoleil was in jail, Manson got a call with more bad news. Two of his girls, Mary Brenner and Sandra Good, were also in jail, having been nabbed for using a stolen credit card at Sears. They were being held on $600 bail. Charlie Manson didn't have $600. What he did have were three Confederates behind bars and a head full of rage over the extent to which his plans to subvert straight society were being foiled left and right. He went off where no one else would see him, away from the Spawn Ranch buildings, and he pounded his fists into a tree. His whole life, all of the abuse and hardship, and then the rejection, one humiliation after another, after another, after another, all the way up to Terry Melcher's final no, all of it flashed before his eyes. He thought, What the fuck is happening here? One by one, this fucked up society is stripping my loves from me. I'll show them. They made animals out of us. I'll unleash those animals. I'll give them so much fucking fear that people will be afraid to come out of their houses. Manson cooled himself down and gathered his followers for an afternoon sermon. Ever since the final Terry Melcher rejection, Charlie had been openly angry, and he had started preaching open hostility, not just towards the piggies who had too much and didn't know how to share, but specifically towards those in power in the entertainment industry. Now, he told his family that Hollywood was full of pigs who were so wrapped up in themselves that they had no idea what was going on around them. Now was the time to wake them up. Now is the time, Charles Manson said, for Helter Skelter. Before I tell you what happened next, I want to tell you what I believe. I don't believe that Charles Manson believed that Helter Skelter was a real thing, actually prophesized in coded lyrics by the Beatles. I do believe that he thought that he could control his followers by convincing them to believe in it, and that he thought that if they did the right things, they might actually spark a violent race-based revolution. I believe that maintaining control over the family and using that control to keep his community going outside of regular society were the most important things to Manson. And I do believe that by August 8th, 1969, Manson realized that his grip on his followers was in danger of slipping. I don't believe that he thought Terry Melcher still lived on Cielo Drive, but I do believe that the unjust hand that Manson thought he had been dealt by Melcher was part of his motivation to send his drug-addled followers to Melcher's old house and have them kill the rich people who currently lived there. Charles Manson has always said that he didn't tell anybody to kill anybody. That is probably a lie in terms of essence, but it's also potentially literally true. He would say just enough to get people to solve problems for him, without actually telling them to do anything. Like, for instance, with Bobby Beausoleil, the only thing anyone suggests that Manson said to him by way of an order to kill Gary Hinman was, you know what to do. And the idea of going out and killing more people in order to free Bobby Beausoleil from jail didn't originate with Charlie, 
Multiple members of the family remember that the conversation about copycat murders started before Charlie came home to the news about Bobby and before he came up with a plan of action. And in sending his followers out to execute that plan, Charlie was careful to use more Dale Carnegie tactics. According to Carnegie, the most effective way to get someone else to do what you want them to do is to make them think that it's their idea. In any case, by 11.30 p.m., Charlie had formulated a plan. He powwowed with his key deputy, Tex Watson. Charlie reminded Tex that it was because his drug deal got screwed up that Charlie had had to shoot Bernard Crow, a.k.a. Lots of Papa. That was what Charlie had to do for the good of the family. Now it was time for Tex to do something for the good of the family. Charlie told Tex he was trusting him to be a leader. Now, Tex had already taken acid that day, and he and Susan had also snorted some of their contraband speed. Tex jumped to this call to action. He told Charlie he was ready to do what he had to do. By some reports, Charlie skillfully led Tex down a conversational path until Tex suggested going to Terry Melcher's old house. And this is sort of plausible, both because Charlie was that good at suggestion and because Tex was the only family member other than Charlie who definitely knew where Terry Melcher's old house was and who might have thought of it when Charlie started prodding him to think up a place where they could go to kill some piggies. According to Tex Watson's testimony, Charlie said, I want you to go to that house where Terry Melcher used to live and totally destroy everyone in that house. As gruesome as you can. Make it a real nice murder, just as bad as you've ever seen. And get all their money. Given that Tex Watson, as far as we know, had never seen a real-life murder scene up to this point, it's interesting that, at least according to him, Charlie said to make the crime scene as bad as you've ever seen. If he hadn't seen a murder scene in real life, where else would he have seen one? There was no internet. The only place Tex could have seen a gruesome murder scene was in the movies. How tapped in was Charlie into what was going on in the movies at that time? That's a question to which I don't know the answer. In fact, in all of the books I've read about Charles Manson, I can't recall any mention that he ever went to the movies at all. We do know, based on later events, that he did know who Dennis Hopper was, but we'll get to that later. But I don't even know if Charlie understood from his visit to Cielo Drive a few months earlier that it was Sharon Tate, an actress best known as the wife of Roman Polanski, who was currently living in that house. According to Watson, when asked who was currently living in the house, Manson just said, some movie stars. Maybe he was referencing Tate, but... Would Charles Manson have known who Sharon Tate was? Maybe he would have had a sense of her as a famous person, but it seems unlikely that Manson would have seen any of Tate's movies. Not many people had seen most of them, other than Valley of the Dolls. Maybe Manson just remembered having seen a gorgeous blonde at the house that day, and maybe he assumed that she must live there, and maybe he assumed that she must be a movie star, because people in Bel Air who look like that often are. Or maybe he had no idea who really lived in that house. 
maybe it didn't really matter to him. Here is where I will note that much of the rest of this episode is gruesome and troubling. I felt nauseous writing it, so if you're sensitive to depictions of horrible crimes, you should stop listening now. Hopefully you'll rejoin us next week. And trigger warning. After Manson's conversation with Tex, Charlie rounded up Susan, Sexy Sadie Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, who went by the nickname Katie, and Linda Kasabian. Linda was fairly new to the family, and Charlie either wanted her to go long because she had taken the call from Bobby, or because she had a valid driver's license, which Charlie made her take with her, even though Tex wouldn't actually let her drive. Charlie told all of the girls to wear black clothes and to grab their knives, and to do exactly what Tex told them to do. He also gave Tex a length of rope, wire cutters for the phone lines and the security gate, and a gun. But Charlie told him only to use the gun as a last resort. The knives should be sufficient. The crime scene had to look like it was the work of the same entity responsible for the death of Gary Hinman, so the girls were told to write witchy things on the walls in blood. And because Charlie needed money, he told Tex to make sure they got some. And if there wasn't any at the Milcher house, then they should go door to door until they got some. The four family members got in a car and drove down to Benedict Canyon. The girls didn't have shoes. Tex drove and he got lost, missing the freeway exit. They didn't arrive at Cielo Drive until after midnight. They were beaten to Cielo by Steve Parent, an 18-year-old kid who had recently met the temporary caretaker of the property, a guy named William Gerritsen, who was living in the guest house while the property's owner, Rudy Altabelli, was away. Steve needed cash, and he had showed up unannounced to see William and to try to sell him a used clock radio. Gerritsen didn't want the clock radio, but he was polite and he made small talk and offered Steve a beer. Steve made a phone call and made arrangements to see another friend. After 20 minutes or so, Steve Parent and William Gerritsen said goodbye, and Steve got in his car to drive away. By this point, Tex had climbed up the telephone pole and snipped the wires there. He and the girls had hopped over a fence. Once they were on the other side, at the end of the long driveway leading up to the house at 10,050 Cielo Drive, Tex told Linda, Susan, and Pat that they were there to go in the main house and kill everyone inside. This was news to the girls, but they didn't argue. Charlie had told them to do whatever Tex told them to do. So they would. Steve Parent started driving down the driveway toward the main gate. He rolled down the window so he could push the button that would open the gate. Tex heard the car and told the girls to hide in the bushes. When Parent reached the gate, Tex was waiting for him, with his gun in one hand and his knife in the other. Stunned, Steve Parent said, 
Please, please don't hurt me. Please, please don't hurt me. I'm your friend. I won't tell. Text slashed Steve's outstretched arm with his knife and shot the kid four times. No one in either the main house or the guest house heard the gunshots, apparently. If they did, they weren't alarmed enough to do anything about it. Watching from the bushes, Linda Kasabian, the newest member of the Manson family, was terrified. When Tex then told her to go around the house and look for an open window so they could get in, she went, but she didn't tell him that she saw two open windows. It didn't matter because there was a window cracked open in the front of the house. Tex used his knife to cut open the window screen, through which he was able to open the window and climb inside. He told Linda to go down to the gate and stand watch. Susan and Pat were to come in the house with him. Inside, Tex approached the living room couch, where Wojciech Frykowski had fallen asleep. The sound of the intruders woke Frykowski up from his drugged slumber. What time is it? he asked. Then, realizing there were strangers in the room, he added, Who are you? What do you want? Tex kicked Frykowski in the head. And then Tex said, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Another word and you're dead. Whether Charlie had meant for Tex to take inspiration from movies or not, he was really getting into his role and improvising dialogue that a screenwriter could hardly improve upon. Tex sent Susan to check the bedrooms to see who else was in the house. She saw Abigail Folger reading in bed. The two women looked at each other, and Susan gave Abigail a little wave. Folger wasn't surprised to see a stranger in the house after midnight. A lot of strangers passed through that house. Susan moved on and saw Jay and Sharon sitting on her bed, talking. They didn't notice Susan. Susan went back to the living room to tell Tex that there were three other people in the house. Tex told her to bring them to him. With her knife brandished, Susan again went from room to room, this time telling the occupants to go to the living room and parroting Tex when she said, Don't say a word, or you're dead. Tex told Susan to tie Frykowski's wrists with a towel. Tex then looped his rope around Jay's neck, then slung the rope over a ceiling rafter and wrapped the hanging end around Sharon's neck. Sharon started sobbing, and Tex told her to shut up. Jay got upset. Can't you see that she's pregnant? He said. Tex shot him in the stomach. I want all the money you've got here, Tex said. Folger said she had money in the bedroom. With her knife out, Susan led Abigail back to the bedroom. Folger opened up her purse. She only had $70. Tex was furious. That wasn't enough. Sharon said, If you give us some time, we can get more. Tex didn't believe she was serious. You know I'm not kidding. Tex said. Sharon said, I know. Tex walked over to Jay, who was still alive despite the bullet in his gut. And Tex started stabbing him. Sharon and Abigail started screaming. Tex stabbed Jake again and again and again. Sharon asked, What are you going to do to us? Tex stated the obvious. You're all going to die. 
Frykowski started trying to struggle free from the towel around his wrists. Tex told Susan to kill him. She pounced on Frykowski with her knife and started stabbing wildly, but he was much bigger than her and strong, and she ended up mostly slashing his legs, and eventually she lost her knife altogether. Tex stepped in and shot Frykowski twice, then hit him over the head repeatedly with the handle of the gun. But he wouldn't die so easily. He managed to run out onto the front lawn. Tex followed, jumped on him, and stabbed and stabbed and stabbed and stabbed until Frykowski stopped moving. Linda had heard the screams, and in something like a state of shock, she had found herself moving away from the gate and toward the scene of the crime. Linda yelled at Susan, Please stop! People are coming! People weren't coming. Linda just wanted them to stop. Susan shrugged. There's nothing I can do, she said. Linda ran, jumped over the fence, and hid in the car. Pat had been holding Folger at knife point, but in all the confusion, Abigail managed to break free. Pat followed her, tackled her, and stabbed her many times. She wasn't sure if Folger was dead, but Tex said he'd make sure. He told her to go to the guest house and kill anyone in there. Tex stood over the bleeding Abigail Folger. Folger said, I give up. You've got me. And Tex finished her off with his knife. Tex Watson would later write a memoir in which he poeticized his work that night, which he had done while coming down from LSD and high on speed. He wrote, The whole world was spinning and turning as red as the blood that was smearing and spattering everywhere. People were running everywhere, but I was perfect, like a machine. They were saying things, but sounds didn't have meaning. I was jumping around, perfection like from space, making happiness noises. I don't remember any of the persons. Their faces were unreal. They didn't look like people. Pat walked around the side of the house, but she was too freaked out to go into the guest house. She returned and told Tex there was no one in there. The three Manson killers went back into the main house. Sharon Tate was the only one still alive. Susan was guarding her. Sharon started pleading with Susan. Susan said, Woman, I have no mercy for you. Sharon tried a new tactic. I don't care if you kill me, she said. But don't kill my baby. Take me with you. Kill me after my baby is born. Susan thought about it. How proud Charlie would be if I presented him with a baby cut from the womb of the woman, she thought to herself. But leaving a baby alive hadn't been their instructions. The more Sharon Tate begged the less Susan Atkins felt for her. I didn't relate to Sharon Tate to be anything but a store mannequin, Susan would later say. She sounded like an IBM machine. Words kept coming out of her mouth, begging and pleading, begging and pleading. I got sick of listening to her, so I stabbed her. And then I just stabbed her, and she fell, and I stabbed her again. Just kept stabbing and stabbing. Watson joined in, too, but it was Susan who stuck her knife straight through Sharon's pregnant stomach, 
Susan later said that she thought about cutting Sharon's heart out and eating it or maybe even eating her baby. But instead, once Sharon lay still, no longer sobbing or crying for her mother, Susan Atkins just walked away. Tex took Abigail Folger's $70. For whatever reason, he didn't even try to take any of the other victims' other valuables, like their expensive watches and jewelry, or Jay's Ferrari, which was parked in the driveway. The Manson killers almost left the house without leaving the witchy graffiti that had been part of Charlie's explicit instructions. Remembering about it at the last minute, Tex sent Susan back into the house. She dipped a towel in Sharon's blood and used it to write the word pig on the front door, creating a clear link, or so she thought, to the Gary Hinman crime scene where they had written political piggy in the victim's blood. When she was done, Susan skipped back to the car. I felt so elated, Atkins would remember later. Tired, but at peace with myself. They drove back to Spawn Ranch. In the car, Pat complained that she had hurt her hand stabbing Folger when her knife hit bone. Susan realized that she had left her knife behind, but they didn't go back. When they got to the ranch, Charlie and a Manson girl named Nancy Pittman were dancing naked outside the movie set saloon. Texan crew had only been gone for a few hours. What are you doing home so early? Charlie wondered. Tex told him all about it. They only got $70, Tex said, but they got the gruesome bit right. Boy, it sure was helter-skelter. Charlie was upset. He had told them explicitly to come back with money and to kill as many households of people as they needed to until they got it. He drove back down to Cielo Drive himself. As he put it later, I went back to see what my children had done. When he got there, Charlie set-dressed the crime scene, moving things around a little bit, making sure to drape an American flag that he had found in the living room near Sharon Tate's body. He also left behind a pair of eyeglasses, which he hoped would throw the police off their scent. And Manson, too, apparently forgot to collect additional valuables. At 8 a.m. on Saturday, Winifred Chapman, Sharon and Roman's maid, showed up for work. She saw the blood before she saw anything else. She ran from the house, screaming, Bodies! Murder! Death! Bodies! Blood! Police arrived about an hour later. After surveying the crime scene, they heard a dog barking in the guest house, and they heard a male voice say, Shh, be quiet. Shh, be quiet. 19-year-old caretaker William Gerritsen was dragged out and asked to identify the bodies. Abigail Folger was so mutilated that Gerritsen thought she was the maid. He didn't recognize Steve Parent, dead in his car. The police didn't believe that Gerritsen had been in the guest house all night and hadn't heard a thing. They took him down to the station and booked him on five counts of murder. Polanski's agent, William Tennant, was brought over to identify all of the bodies. 
around 11 a.m. L.A. time, he placed a call to Polanski in London. Polanski was about to leave the house to go out to dinner with his friends Gene Gutkowski and Victor Lowndes. Roman could barely understand what Tennant was saying through Tennant's tears. There's been a disaster at the house, Tennant said. Whose house? Polanski asked. Your house, came the reply. Sharon's dead. They're all dead. No, 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 Polanski said. Roman, they were murdered. Polanski couldn't remember what happened next. He went into shock, started punching walls. Did she know how much I loved her? He kept asking the friends who surrounded him, worried he would hurt himself. Did she? Did she? Did she? Did she? Did she? By noon, Los Angeles time, what was now being called the Tate Murders was all over the news. At Spawn Ranch, the family gathered around the TV in George Spawn's cabin, and Susan and Tex all but bragged to their fellow Mansonites that this was their handiwork. Charlie slept through most of the day, but when he watched the news that evening, he was dismayed to note that no one was reporting the involvement of the Black Panthers. No one had picked up that the clue Susan had left, linking this crime scene to the Hinman crime, was even a clue at all. No one seemed to understand that this brutal murder of Hollywood hippies was intended to start a race war. That night, after most of the family had gone to bed, Charlie gathered the four who had gone the night before, plus Clem Grogan and Leslie Van Hooden. He told them that last night, everything had gone wrong. So they had to go out again, that night, and Charlie was going to come with them. The first night, we didn't know, Patricia Krenwinkel would later say. The second night, we did. Everyone in Los Angeles had spent August 9th, 1969, talking about what had happened at Sharon Tate's house the night before. Hollywood people, of course, were devastated. Most of them knew someone who had been there that night or someone who claimed that they had been invited to be there. Joan Didion's recollection of August 9th, related in her essay, The White Album, would become the most resonant description of the moment when the news reverberated around the Hollywood community. I recall a time when the dogs barked every night and the moon was always full. On August 9th, 1969, I was sitting in the shallow end of my sister-in-law's swimming pool in Beverly Hills when she received a telephone call from a friend who had just heard about the murders at Sharon Tate Polanski's house on Cielo Drive. The phone rang many times during the next hour. These early reports were garbled and contradictory. One caller would say, hoods. The next would say, chains. There were 20 dead. No, 12. 10. 18. Black masses were imagined and bad trips blamed. I remember all of the day's misinformation very clearly. And I also remember this, and I wish I did not. I remember that no one was surprised. 
But it wasn't just Hollywood people who cared, who were afraid. Rosemary and Lino LaBianca, a middle-aged couple who had been on vacation with Rosemary's adult daughter, returned to the L.A. area around 1 a.m. Sunday morning, and they stopped at the all-night newsstand by their house in Los Feliz to pick up the morning paper. They chatted with the newsagent for a while about the crime, which was unthinkable and fascinating. Right after the LaBiancas left the newsstand, the bars closed, and the newsstand was flooded with Saturday night revelers who wanted the Sunday special edition of the LA Times, which had all the latest Tate news. Rosemary was getting ready for bed, and her husband was settling in to read the sports section when Charlie Manson and friends pulled up outside their house on Waverly Drive. The Manson family had attended a party at another house on this street sometime in the past. It seemed like as good a place as any to stop. Charlie couldn't tell the socioeconomic difference between the polished but thoroughly middle-class neighborhood of Los Feliz and the spectacularly wealthy enclave of Bel Air. To Charlie, pretty much anything above abject poverty looked like wealth. Charlie parked in front of the house where they had gone to the party, and he and Tex, armed with a pistol and a bayonet, entered the house next door through an unlocked back door. They found Lino LaBianca asleep on the couch with the newspaper over his face. Charlie nudged the sleeping man with his gun, and he awoke. Who are you? What do you want? They tied Mr. LaBianca's hands together with a piece of leather Charlie had been wearing around his neck, and then Charlie went in the bedroom and came back with Mrs. LaBianca, who had thrown a dress on over her nightgown. Manson asked the LaBiancas to give him any cash they had in the house. Tex went into the bedroom and came back with Mrs. LaBianca's wallet. Charlie put it in his pocket and went out to the car. He brought Pat and Leslie into the house, told Tex, Make sure everybody does something. Got back into the car and drove away with Linda in the passenger seat and Susan and Clem in the back. Inside the house, Tex thrust the bayonet into Lino LaBianca's throat over and over again. The dying man said, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead, until he was. Pat and Leslie took Rosemary into the bedroom, where Pat stabbed her a few times. Then Tex came in with his bayonet and finished the job. Tex and Pat went back to Mr. LaBianca, carved the word war into his stomach, and Pat jammed a kitchen knife into his throat and a fork into his belly. Leslie still hadn't done anything, so Tex told her it was her job to mutilate the lady's corpse. Rosemary was lying on her stomach, and Leslie lifted up the dead woman's dress and stabbed her legs and butt. The three then used the married couple's blood to write messages on the walls. Rise and death to pigs. And on the fridge, Helter Skelter, H-E-A-L-T-E-R, because Pat couldn't spell. This was probably after they raided the fridge for chocolate milk and watermelon. They left the watermelon rinds in the sink. Meanwhile, Charlie was driving the getaway car north to Silmar, a diverse neighborhood not far from where Lotsapapa had lived. 
Charlie told Linda to take all the money out of Rosemary LaBianca's wallet, and then they'd dump it somewhere where it would be found by a black person, who of course would use the credit cards inside rather than turning the wallet in, and then that black person would be assumed to be responsible for the murders of the LaBiancas. When Linda returned from the gas station bathroom where she had dumped the wallet, she found that Charlie had gone into a Denny's and bought the whole gang milkshakes. They then drove to the beach, where they took a walk, and Linda told Charlie she was pregnant. He was thrilled. Then they went down the coast a bit to Venice, and Charlie asked if anyone knew anybody who lived nearby. Linda remembered a guy she had met hitchhiking, a Middle Eastern guy who she thought might be an actor. Charlie insisted that they drive to the guy's house, and when they got there, Charlie handed Linda a knife and told her to knock on the actor's door and kill him. Linda said... I'm not you, Charlie. Charlie didn't listen. He gave Clem his gun, and the plan was Linda would knock on the door, stab the actor when he answered, and Clem would then shoot him to make sure. Trusting his children to obey his orders, Charlie left them there and got in the car and drove back to Spawn Ranch, telling them to hitchhike home when they were done. Linda couldn't bring herself to follow orders. She told the others that she couldn't remember where the actor lived after all. They went and buried the gun on the beach and hitchhiked home. William Gerritsen was still in custody Sunday morning, but he was released after a lie detector test revealed he was telling the truth when he said he knew nothing about the murders. At this point, the LAPD were convinced that a drug dealer was responsible. They had found cocaine in J.C. Brings car, and they had apparently been aware of Frykowski's activities to some extent, and they assumed he had just pissed off the wrong dealer. When two L.A. County Sheriff Office detectives called the precinct Sunday morning wanting to talk to someone in charge of the Tate investigation because they thought the crime scene sounded similar to a case they were working on in Topanga Canyon where the words political piggy had been written on the wall of a dead man's house in his own blood, the sergeant who answered the phone basically said, Thanks, but we're pretty sure our case is drug-related, so there's clearly no connection, but good luck. The LAPD also didn't believe the LaBianca murders were committed by the same person or people who committed the Tate murders, because there was no evidence that the LaBiancas had anything to do with drugs. Mr. LaBianca, it was revealed, had significant gambling debts, so that was the first trail the cops were tracking. If anything, the LAPD thought... The LaBianca killings might have been a copycat crime committed by some sicko who read about the Tate killings and got inspired to grab his own headlines. Charlie himself was done with the copycat killing scheme. He told his followers that they had done an incredible thing, pointing to the headlines as evidence that Helter Skelter had started. But even if the entire city was in a panic, a race war hadn't started. Despite the clues Manson believed his followers had left at the scenes implicating the Black Panthers, no one in Los Angeles thought that the killers were necessarily black. In fact, if the killers had been black, they might not have been given a chance to kill. It was presumed that if any local residents had seen a car full of black people cruising through Bel Air at midnight on a Friday night, they probably would have called the police. As it was... Neighbors heard gunshots and other unusual sounds and reported nothing. As photographer Julian Wasser put it, it was the kind of neighborhood where people would say nothing if they heard screaming. 
They'd put pillows over their heads if murders were going on. It would be months before anyone had any idea that Manson and his friends had anything to do with these crimes. But Tex Watson, paranoid from too many drugs, had become convinced without any evidence the FBI had gone to visit his mom in Texas. Charlie believed Tex, and he decided that Spawn Ranch was too close to civilization. Manson told the family that the war was on, and they were moving to the desert to find that bottomless pit, just as soon as he could scrounge together the cash. Next week, we'll talk about how the murder of his pregnant wife affected Roman Polanski, who would go on to make perhaps the quintessential paranoid Hollywood film of the 1970s. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. We had three special guests. Nate DeMeo played Charles Manson. Nate has his own podcast called The Memory Palace, and he's releasing new episodes right now. They're really fantastic. Listen to them at thememorypalace.us. Rom Bergman was back as Roman Polanski, and we were pleased to welcome Wiley Wiggins, who played Tex Watson. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RememberThisPod. If you like the podcast, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. A great way to do that is by tweeting or Facebooking or even emailing your friends links to the podcast, either to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, or directly to the podcast on iTunes. And don't forget, next season is all listener requests. So if you'd like to request an episode, go to our forum. You can find that at youmustrememberthispodcast.com, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Oh, come I will be with you when you lose your brave chasing the Some bratty, bright and bubbly, terrible scene that was.